Good morning to you. We have, uh, we as a church, if you're new with us, typically what we do is we teach through books of the Bible, and we have just finished 10 or 11 months in the book of Isaiah, so give yourself a hand. Good stuff there, yes. Uh, we're excited to uh, move forward, and uh, more than anything, uh, I know Monty and I are excited to get back in the New Testament. I'll speak for me, my... Uh, my brain has, was seriously challenged, my football brain studying Isaiah, like, Lord Jesus, give me some New Testament, right? Uh, so we are about to launch into the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians. So here's what we're going to do is this morning before we start to teach through the actual text of the book of 1 Corinthians, we must remember one of the most important principles for interpreting the Bible, any book of the Bible, is we must travel back to that book. So we're going to travel back this morning to Corinth first before we bring this book to bear on our church here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And it's because like any New Testament book, 1 Corinthians is rooted in a historical context. So it is crucial for you and I to go back and put ourselves into the shoes of the very people that Paul originally wrote the letter to. So important before we actually bring it to bear uh, on us, before we ask ourselves the question, how does that relate to us today? Now this is especially important as we study the book of 1 Corinthians. Corinthians, because it's actually a very long book. It's the second longest book that the Apostle Paul wrote, and it's full of very complex issues, as we'll see later. But it's very rich in terms of how Christ's follower actually follows Christ. Now, here's what we typically do in our Bible study groups. Uh, we're not, we're not going to do it here at Fellowship, but here's what typically happens, and you may experience this, and I certainly have been a part of this in my early years as a Christian. It goes like this. The leader says of the Bible study, Fred, what does verse 3 mean to you? And Fred pontificates what he thinks verse 3 of a particular passage means to him. And then he turns to Sally and says, Sally, what does verse 3 mean to you? And she says, well, although I really respect Fred, uh, I actually think verse 3 means this, which is the total opposite of what uh, Fred had said. At that point, the Bible study leader turns a little pale, swallows hard, and said, why don't we move on to verse 4, you know? Um, <laughs> one thing we don't want to do here at Fellowship Bible is to move to application so quickly without spending enough time in the context, which we're going to do this morning, and the text. Here's how you study the Bible. Great takeaway for us this morning, great reminder. You study the context, and then you look at the text, and you make many observations. What do I see? And then as you do that, the next step is you look at the text and you ask the question, what does it mean? Not what does it mean to me or to you. Nobody really cares. But what did Paul mean when he wrote the book? What did the author mean? 
There is one meaning. So many observations, one meaning. And then lastly, we come to this point of many applications, which once we find out the meaning of a text, the applications can come quite swiftly and beautifully to our own personal lives. So we want to make sure we do that this morning. And to do that, we're going to start with the history of Corinth. The history of Corinth, as you can see in your notes. The history of the city of Corinth is a long one. The ancient Greek battleships were built there. And in uh, 146 B.C., the Romans, who at the time were really conquering the world, they invaded the city of Corinth and they left it desolate, left it in ruins. But as we'll see in a little bit, the geographical location of the city of Corinth sort of guarantee that it wouldn't stay laying in ruins. And 100 years later, in 46 B.C., Julius Caesar, the politician of Rome and the uh, general of Rome, came in and actually rebuilt the entire city. So it became a Ro Roman colony, and it became the capital uh, of the region, even over Athens. It had a Roman look, a Roman government, a Roman feel, and it was also immigrated by Roman soldiers. When they retired after their service in Rome to the army, the Roman government would give them land where? In Corinth. And they immigrated there. So there were a lot of Romans. But the city was also made up at that time of nearly 80,000 people when Paul worked there and lived there. It was the largest city at that time of all of Greece Again, even over Athens, and uh, obviously a lot of Greeks made up the population. But we do know from Acts chapter 18, 4, that there was a large enough Jewish congregation to have a synagogue there. The city also was very diverse. It had many Latins, Syrians, and Egyptians. So that's a little bit of a quick history. Secondly, we need to take a look at the greatness of Corinth. The greatness of Corinth. There's a slide I want to show you that will uh, satellite picture that shows you sort of a, a picture of where Athens is and where Corinth is in relation to that. And if you look on that map, the location of Corinth is the main reason Corinth was a great city. If you look at it, you'll see the southern part of Greece as it comes around the island right below Athens. Uh, it, or southern part of Greece is nearly an island. And to the west there, you have the Corinthian Gulf. And to the east, you have the Saronic Gulf. And all that is left to join these two cities is a small strip, an isthmus, that's about four miles wide. And this location is why Corinth was a great, one of the greatest trading and commercial centers of the world then and today. Even today, across this four-mile piece of land, they have dug a what they call the Corinth Canal. Take a look at this. So instead of having to walk across that, ships can now actually sail right through it. Very important in terms of why it was great. Here's what would happen. Sailors and merchants would come from one side of the Gulf, on one side of the Isthmus, and if their ship was small enough, the ship would be loaded on rollers and rolled across this four-mile strip of the isthmus and then relaunched in the water. This, there was a road built just for that. 
Or if their ship was too big, they would take the cargo off the ship, roll it across the four-mile strip of land, and then repack the cargo into another ship. And here's what that did. That saved them a six-day, 202-mile trip around the Cape. The Cape was called Cape Malia. It's now called Mapaton, and it was very deadly and dangerous. Matter of fact, a familiar Greek saying indicated this, or said this, Let him who sails around Malia first make his will. Another one said, let him who sails around Malia kiss his wife goodbye forever. <laughs> so, uh, very important in terms of why this city blew up. And so basically, all the, north, all the north to south traffic had to go through Corinth. All the east to west trade of the Mediterranean world would choose to go through her. And this made objects of luxury find their ways to the malls of Corinth. Or to the shops. They didn't have malls, but you get the picture. Things like the Arabian balsam, Phoenician dates, Libyan ivory, Babylonian carpets, Cilician goat's hair. I don't know why you would want goat's hair, but maybe a coat. Maybe, Jen, I can get you a Cilician goat's hair for Christmas. And a Laconian wool. She just rolled her, rolled her eyes at me. Corinth, by many historians, has been called the vanity fair of the ancient world. It's like putting New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas into one place. Just think of that. Crazy as a cricket and a hubcap, right? <clears throat> its tourism was off the charts. And here's why. The basis and foundation of their tourism was the Isthmus Games, second only to popularity uh, of the Olympic Games at the time. And instead of the Olympics, they happen every four years in different cities around the world. And you know, as you watch the Olympics and, Olympics and people from all over the world converge on that one city, massive people, massive money spent, massive things bought, masses, massive debauchery, if you would, so you can imagine every other year, not every four years in a different city, but every other year the Isthmus Games would take place where? In Corinth. And people came from all over the world to be there. Another thing that gave it a great tourism attraction was uh, it was the first Greek city to host the Roman gladiatorial contest. Now just Google that when you get home. Um, a lot of death, and people cheered it and loved it. So very vicious stuff, but it brought tourism in. So here we have a big, rich city full of people, and things from all over the known war world sort of converge in the city of Corinth. And that takes us to our next category, which is the wickedness of Corinth. To no one's surprise, hopefully, here this morning, where there is great prosperity... And a lot of people packed together, you're going to get an enormous amount of sin, an enormous immorality. And Corinth certainly fit that bill. The word, there was a word in the Greek language called Corinthianized, meaning to live like a Corinthian. It had become a very familiar part of the Greek language, and it meant to live with drunken and sexual debauchery. 
Alien, one of the late Greek writers, tells us that if a Corinthian was ever portrayed in a Greek play on stage, he was always portrayed as a drunk. Amazing, huh? One historian writes, public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form in Corinth. See, we aren't the first culture to invent the selfies. They just didn't have a camera. It was a culture that was highly competitive, the historian writes, where a person's sense of worth and value was based on the recognition of others' opinions of them or their financial accomplishments. I hope in your mind and heart we're connecting some dots to our modern-day world, are we not? He finishes, it was a culture where public recognition was way more important than one's own personal character. Leading the way in this debauchery was a source of evil that was known throughout the entire civilized world. Above the isthmus, that little strip that I showed you, was a mountain, the mountain of Acropolis, and on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. That's the remains of it today. Oh, Aphrodite has seen her better days. But if you visit there, you can, I'd probably steal a rocket, put it in my pocket, and give it to Jenna and say, love. <laughs> While overlooking Corinth, she received worship as the god of love, fertility, and prostitutes. She housed up, historians tell us, up to a thousand prostitutes. And at night, they would descend among the city and the people of Corinth down below to engage in the debauchery. That's really so sad as you think about it. Sex was often mixed in with pagan religious festivals. They would have dinner parties on one side of the temple, flesh parties on the other, and afterwards come together to worship the pagan gods in the middle. The worship of Greek gods, as you can imagine, was a norm. Uh, you can Google Greek gods and get a picture of, of who they were. They even had coins minted with images. Check this out. Images of the temple Aphrodite on them as a branding and advertisement for the city to bring more people in. This is who we are. This is what we stand for. We're loud and proud about it. Sound familiar? In another temple, the temple of Asclepius, they worshiped physical, emotional, and mental health by laying in the springs for purification. That sounds fun at first. Stay with me here. Exercise, taking long baths, theaters, going to gymnasium to work out, libraries with tree-lined gardens. With, but then they go on long processions while singing hymns to the God of the flesh. It's much like a modern high-dollar health spa where external beauty is their number one God. Sound familiar? Add to that what we know is the crude sins of the sailors and trainers, not trainers, but traitors, from every corner of the world, and it certainly was a city where sin never went to sleep, whether at night or day. So the history, the greatness, and the wickedness of Corinth brought to us uh, this next reason of Paul's ministry and letter to the Corinthians. 
Here's what happened. Before Paul came to Corinth during his second missionary journey, and I have a slide for that, sort of shows you his travel. And on your left there, you'll see Corinth and Athens, sort of the strip that I showed you. Before he came there on his second missionary journey, he'd have had a hard uh, year of travel over land and sea. And I would encourage you to look that up to sort of get a picture of Paul's travel as this map shows. And um, while in Thessalonica, uh, Acts 17, 1 through 13 tells us that the Jewish leaders, they really hounded Paul. They got after him and he left and he arrived in Athens, and what he really needed was some good old R&R, just some rest and relaxation after his persecution. But Acts 17 goes on to tell us that he, is, he was in Athens, and he observed the many idols in the city. <laughs> this is powerful. That the Spirit of God provoked his heart to tell the people of Athens about the Lord Jesus. And he did. It's a powerful passage in Acts he told them the truth about Christ. And after that, uh, the scripture tells us that he left Athens and he crossed the narrow isthmus that we talked about. And he traveled for two days, a journey to Corinth. Now, we know very little about Paul's time there. Here's basically what happened is Luke in Acts chapter 18 is where you want to write down in your notes and go back and read it. Luke compressed Paul's 18 months in the city of Corinth into 17 verses, as only a doctor probably could do, right? But he gives us a little picture of Paul's time in Corinth, laid out in Acts chapter 18. And here's basically what it tells us. That first it says that Paul took up a living with, living with Aquila and Priscilla, uh, mainly because they were a Jewish couple, so had the same heritage as Paul. Paul had, had a, heritage, a heritage of a Jew, also a Roman, and uh, he could mix in both worlds. Uh, but took up residence with them, and also because Paul was a tent or leather maker, and so was Aquila, so they connected there. And it says that Paul preached very hard in the synagogue, but the Jews were so daggone cantankerous and stubborn and hostile that he had to abandon the preaching there. And so here's what Acts chapter 18 tells us. He leaves the synagogue, all right? They won't listen. They're stubborn. They protest. And what does he do? Paul says, I don't care. I'm a honey badger. He walks across the street. You don't get that. Honey badger in our family is when we say, you don't care about something? Said, I'm a honey badger. I don't care. Google honey badger. They don't care about nothing. They'll attack anything, right? They'll, they'll attack an elephant or a lion and eat their ears off. So, so Paul goes honey badger, walks across the street, and what does he do? <laughs> he goes to the home of justice and starts a church there. I love that about Paul. He, he don't care. It don't matter where we're at. Synagogue won't listen. And so in light of that, he made a lot of inroads, especially with the Greeks and Romans, and had some great success there in terms of ministry. Uh, Acts 18 tells us that Paul's most high-profile convert, I love this, was a guy named Crispus who was actually the ruler of the synagogue. So while in the synagogue, Crispus, the guy who was in charge of the synagogue, he hears the gospel, uh, Acts 18 tells us, he comes to Christ, him and his whole household. I think about guys like uh, uh, Josh McDowell, 
who uh, uh, started out to debunk the resurrection. And in the process, he's the very guy who comes to Christ and spends the rest of his life telling others about Christ. That's Crispus. And with, the, as I said, the common man, Greek and Romans, Paul had great success. And so here's what happened. He leaves after 18 months. And while he's in Ephesus, about 55 A.D., Paul learned that things were not going well. Probably not to a surprise of him and for what we know even this morning, not to us. There was a wild city. The, the, the city had infiltrated the church and things weren't going well. And so what happened is they wrote a letter to Paul, the house of Chloe, and said, hey, we got problems. Will you help us? And, uh, and so Paul, what Paul did, he wrote back and, uh, uh, to address these problems. And then he writes, and he, in doing so, he writes the first letter to the Corinthian church to address what was going on there. And then we know that Timothy, his faithful right-hand man, hand-delivered that letter to the church at Corinth to be read aloud. And typically in those days, instead of going through a text, and we go through a text and we take little bites of it at a time because we need to understand it and unpack it. We, we need context, as we said. Context is king. But in that day, they needed no context, and they would stand and read probably the entire letter to the Corinthian church of all the things that Paul addressed to them. We must remember that Paul knew these people well. He stayed with them 18 months. He did evangelism. He saw Johnny come to Christ. He saw Sally come to Christ. Right? He, he knew who came to Christ, and then he discipled them as he planted the church and built the church up. But here's what we know. This church refused to grow. It was immature, and it was not Christ-like, and that's Paul's message in 1 Corinthians Dr. Mark Deaver puts it this way about the church at Corinth. He says, the point of Paul's letter is one we need to hear today. He writes the Corinthians about the church, particularly Paul discusses what should characterize the church and why these particular characteristics must typify the church. I like how Dr. Leon Mars puts it. It's in your notes uh, even better. The church at Corinth was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians to address that. Here's what else we'll see in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll see the joys and the sorrows of a pastor, the joys and sorrows of the apostle Paul as he tries to correct and shepherd this young, immature church. We'll see that Paul's first and foremost concern for the church is its health, for building up members of this body. And as we study this book, each of us are going to have to ask ourselves a question, probably more than one. But questions like, do we come to church to build up the other members of the body? Do you pray? before each Sunday worship gathering that God would do a deep work both in you and through you to the other members here. That's one of the many things that were lacking at the church at Corinth. 
And Paul said it was a problem. And then lastly, our study of 1 Corinthians. After a brief introduction, Paul's focus, as I said, will be on what a healthy church looks like. He will do this by both addressing the problems that the members had written him about and by calling other, the, the Christ followers in that church onward to maturity. There's a beautiful picture here. Now, just get the, the, the picture here. We're not doing 1 Corinthians at Fellowship Bible Church because we think you are the 1 Corinthians church. Not at all. But look, we can't put anything past us. We certainly are human. So Paul's doing two things. Here's a picture of what a healthy church looks like. And then he's calling believers, calling believers onward forward to spiritual maturity. You cannot stay the way you are. Very classic Paul. So here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to divide this book up sort of based on the issues. As Paul goes, he's answering a letter. Remember, there's problems in the church. So he's answering this letter. And so he sort of addresses them by topics. And so instead of just going through the, the, the whole book as one, we're going to take the whole book and we're going to divide it into mini-series, M-I-N-I, mini-series, that address the same topics that Paul addressed as he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. The first one we're going to entitle Wedge, Overcoming Division and Cultivating Unity. First six chapters of Corinthians, a lot of division in that church, a lot of drama, a lot of people wanted to say, I'm a disciple of Paul, I'm Apollos, Phil Hearn is my disciple, you know, I worship him, right? All that kind of craziness got going on there, and Paul addresses that. Secondly, uh, we'll address, as Paul does, the issues of marriage, divorce, family, and singleness, is there ever a time that needs more clarification on one of the most important, if not the most important thing in our culture, that those things have been being attacked? And so they were then, they are now, and we get to clarify. The third segment we'll deal with is spiritual gifts. And you may or may not know this at this time, but each person who knows Christ has at least one spiritual gift if not more, and those gifts are not to terminate on yourself for self-glory. Those gifts are to terminate on the body, where they build up the body, they serve the body, and God gets the glory. And in light of those spiritual gifts, how does that look for us to use those gifts in a very orderly and God-honoring worship service? That's the issues Paul addresses there. The fourth little section we'll work on is the resurrection as Paul takes a deep dive into the theology and doctrine of the future resurrection of believer. And I can think of nothing that will drop a man or woman's anxiety than to understand fully the truth that if you know Christ, you will never die. That's big. And then Christian liberty. Christian liberty as Paul addresses the, the need to be free from the restless performance of religious, religious ritual, free from the list of external rules that we must keep, and learning to live free in Christ. I remember as a young believer a year and two, or two in, uh, maybe I was 20, 21, I was asked to speak at my home church. 
And uh, as I left that morning, my mom said to me, where's your tie? And I said, I'm not wearing one. She said, how dare you go into the holy house of God without a tie on? And I thought in my head, I'm a brand new believer, that's crazy. That's crazy. But that's the kind of stuff that has ravaged the American church for years. Now look, if you want to wear a tie, be proud of it. It's okay. If you don't wear, want to wear a tie, it's okay. But the church has been undermined in some ways by making non-issues issues. And that was the same thing that was happening with Paul. Obviously, I'm not a tie wearer. Uh, I wear one at a wedding. If I'll marry you, then I'll take it off very quickly after the pictures. Uh, so Paul's going to address that at great clarity on Christian liberty. What does it mean to live free in Christ and not be have the bondage of man-made rules living upon our necks and hearts? And then lastly, church discipline. But I want to add what I think is a biblical word here, and that is redemptive church discipline. Redemptive church discipline. Look, no one wakes up in the morning thinking, you know, I'd like to be excommunicated from my church this morning, right? No. Paul really addresses, right? He addresses church discipline because in a redemptive way, because redemptive church discipline, anytime it takes place, the goal is reconciliation, reconciliation with Christ and with the people of Christ. It is a gracious gift from God to people like us who tend to run astray, to the Jonahs. When you and I, when the Jonah in us comes out and he goes exactly opposite, remember Jonah chapter 1, God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah heard him. He, what did he do? He arose and he went 2,500 miles in the opposite of direction. When we do that, the gift of God to us is redemptive church discipline where the people of God come around you and say, no, come home. Whew, that's good. Where would I be? That's why I just got emotional. If some men from time to time over 34 years had not said to me, come home. Now, if you've not figured it out by now, the culture of the Corinthian church is much like the culture we find ourselves in today, which is further proof of the biblical doctrine of original sin. Man was born sinful, and so were women. They've always been sinful, and they will always be sinful. Secondly, the church at Corinth suffers from many of the things that harm the American church or that the American church suffers from in 2017. Specifically, individualism and self-indulgence. In our world today, individual preference seems to be the norm. The individual conscience is re revered and treated as a semi-deity to who our ultimate allegiance is owed. 
The worship of self-esteem, felt needs, and self-promotion has ingrained itself into the heart of those who know Christ, and God is praised so far as he can make us feel better about ourselves. Yes, the culture has infiltrated the church. So I say again this morning, what a gracious gift from God to give us a book like 1 Corinthians that we can use to address and therefore correct the very things that could, can, or are plaguing us. Again, this book is going to ask, make you ask and answer the question, why do you come to church? When we do come, the Bible tells us, is participate in the life of the church. Because we are not to come as individual consumers to do our spiritual shopping for the week. We actually assemble together as a living institution, a body. What the church does for you is certainly addressed. But first and foremost, the church is for God. So you and me, I think, need to continue a fresh turning from a self-centered involvement in the church to a full-blown, God-centered life together, which God is calling us for his purposes in the world. And when we get this, when we get this, the church becomes much more than another item on our weekly to-do list. Here's what happens. Here's what can happen in all of us. Is the church is a weekly to-do list. Just like every morning I get up and Fix breakfast for my kid, and I get him to school, and I go to work. Whatever your little weekly to-do list is. And as soon as life gets hard and complicated and busy, the first thing, if the church, if the church, which is voluntary, if the church becomes a weekly part of your to-do list, then the first thing we do is hit eject on the church. And we lose the benefit of living together in the body. So that's the question you're going to have to wrestle with. And I think as we do, our prayer is that this will bring a deep change both to the individual and the body. And so our prayer this morning is this, that as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, obviously God will do a great work in us, and he will really grow this church and make it healthy, continue to make it healthy. Think about divisions, relational divisions, big time, marriage, family, singles. We can go right on through all the things we talked about. Here's what I know as I've read 1 Corinthians over the last few weeks getting ready. I realize that I'm a, I'm, I can scan when I'm, when I'm crammed to take a test and I have not studied, and I got 20 minutes before the test, you know, trying to pick up words. I can also be a very slow, methodical reader, but typically I'm your average medium reader, speed-wise. So it took me right at an hour to read the book of 1 Corinthians at a decent pace. In light of that, you can read it two to four times a week easily. Easily, and I would encourage you over the next month to just stay in 1 Corinthians, to eat it, then to eat it again, to eat it again, and again, 
and again. And let it begin to ruminate in your mind and heart. And maybe even at some point, go to Sonic Light get a, and read through uh, Dr. Constable's layman's notes on this book. And let it begin to work in you. And as you come in here this morning on a Sunday morning, it won't be new no, you'll be ready. You might even correct Monty and I or Phil or whoever's teaching them. No, 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 no. I got a question about verse 3, and it won't be what you think. <laughs> it won't be what you feel. It will actually be from the text. And so uh, that's one thing I want to challenge you with. And then secondly, uh, as you think about this whole book and uh, just its nature of how healthy, a picture of what a healthy church looks like, uh, maybe you can even think through in your life, how do I treat church? Is it an add-on or is it really a part of my life? So take a minute this morning and ask the, that question, so what? Sort of take that next right step as we move into this great book, exciting book of 1 Corinthians. Amen? Good word. Take just a minute to do that.